Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, as always. And this week I am joined by Jackson Pios. Uh, Jackson has been on the podcast uh, two times already and probably going to be on the podcast many times more because he is doing some really exciting stuff. But if you can't remember Jackson, he has a PhD in clinical and sports nutrition uh, and within our kind of evidence-based crowd and within the people listening to podcasts probably know him for his diet break research um, and talking lots about diet breaks and I'm sure we'll touch on that during our chat today but that's not going to be the kind of principal thing we're going to be chatting about. Um, I also mentioned I didn't realize how much Jackson loved anime until I started watching his vlogs uh, which have been really entertaining <laughs> actually so if people want to check out some kind of a dude who's uh, kind of within our niche who loves anime doing vlogs I uh, they, they've been really fun, Jackson. It's a weird niche, right? But the the little community that we have is a is a tight knit one. The old anime fitness head. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so something I wanted to make sure we touched on, uh, and this is a bit delayed because it was episode 196, 197, where we had the intuitive eating roundtable. And I guess as a podcaster, I always struggle with those roundtable setups because I feel like some people you just inevitably can't say everything you want to say when there's that many people in there because it's just so hard to have a dynamic conversation. Uh, and I felt Jackson probably had some things that maybe you wanted to reiterate, um, maybe say a bit more clearly. I know you did a piece for JPS on their website, but um, yeah, I just wanted to give you the floor to talk a little bit through that, especially considering the podcast listeners here are very much a lot physique competitors, coaches of that type, or people who have aspirations to grow muscle, lose fat, and intuitive eating um, quite often is seen as something we should move towards. But as you explained in that article, and I'm sure you're going to touch on, it doesn't always make complete sense. Yeah. Um, so I'll caveat this by saying that I'm absolutely not anti intuitive eating uh, broadly. Um, I'm coming at this purely from an athlete perspective. I'm not an expert um, in eating disorder psychology or, or intuitive eating per se. Uh, I just have an, an athlete mindset and that's what's driving uh, a lot of my perspectives and commentaries on this. So uh, don't take my word as fact. Um, this is purely my uh, just... Uh, pragmatic and, and theoretical um, speculation surrounding intuitive eating purely in the context of basically athletes or physique competitors. Uh, so I think it would be foolish if we didn't just firstly touch on um, the benefits of intuitive eating and then potentially how they might apply in an athlete context. So we know intuitive eating um, will notably reduce eating disorder symptoms, and that's been shown multiple times in, in controlled research, uh, can improve relationships with food, um, can help to build awareness with hunger and satiety cues, which are often things that some of the physique uh, competitors struggle with. Um, has even been shown to improve uh, perceived body image. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits uh, there. But with all those said, I feel as though some people, particularly athletes, they might be using or overusing this approach without possibly realizing that it isn't very conducive to their goals, um, especially if the goals that they have can't be achieved while remaining weight neutral in the long run, uh, such as gaining muscle mass, reducing body fat, or, or even both. Um, now, I think part of this comes down to members of the fitness industry 
potentially not understanding the principles and, and expected outcomes of intuitive eating. Um, like just going from memory a couple of years ago and, and Eric's acknowledged this, but Eric Helms um, was previously sort of advocating intuitive eating in the off season, but it wasn't actually strictly intuitive eating. It was just sort of eating without tracking. Um, I think that's what potentially contributed and, and he's rectified that since and, and admitted to that error. But at that time, intuitive eating was a very new thing. And I don't think that, the fitness community fully had um, uh, the correct grasp on it. Now, um, for most people, they probably understand the body image and the eating psychology benefits uh, associated with intuitive eating, um, but perhaps not understanding that this behavior or this framework is typically associated with weight stability and not a tool for performance, weight, or body composition change. Um, now, I think most intuitive eating uh, followers or users understand that the premise is built upon eating to biological cues. Um, but I also think some who don't fully understand intuitive eating are probably forgetting that, that it is against our biological interests to carry absurd amounts of muscle mass that could slow us down and make us susceptible to predators. Um, nor is it to be abnormally lean where we, we wouldn't outlast a famine. So if either of those um, outcomes are the aim uh, and basically the, the more uh, extreme your goals are on either end of the spectrum, um, biologically navigating by following your, your hunger and satiety cues is just very unlikely uh, to get you there. Um, and I think most high-level athletes understand that uh, – some significant overriding of biological cues at times is sometimes required to really sort of reach those um, elite status in, in any sporting endeavor. Um, and just for uh, like a little anecdote piece, um, uh, I used to compete in semi-professional Australian rules football. And at that time, one of the, the best players in our country, his name was Ben Cousins, played for the West Coast Eagles. Now, I was just so happened to be at um, a park, a, a football oval, where he was training by himself just by chance uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. And I, I was just watching this guy run. And he was running laps and laps and laps. <clears throat> and I watched him pretty much fall onto his haunches with his hands on his knees and violently vomit for about 30 seconds straight wipe his mouth and then pick himself up and keep going going on running. Now, there's no media there. There's no one watching. It's just him by himself. And I think I just hesitate to guess that for athletes who uh, th think the Michael Jordans and whatnot guys are really pushing to the top level, I think they're, they're going past the point where your body is saying, hang on, this is a little bit uncomfortable here. Um, now, I also think that there's um, perhaps following on from, from some of the 3DMJ promotion of intuitive eating a couple of years back as not intuitive eating, but eating without tracking. Um, it seems like there's this recent perception in our industry that you can't be considered an advanced athlete or a proponent of evidence-based practice if you're not intuitively eating in the off season. Now, if your off season just means time away from contest and some downtime, then intuitive eating could be a great move. Um, however, if your off-season should be more accurately labelled as an improvement season, then you should be aware that it's probably coming uh, with some progress, that intuitive eating is going to be coming with some progress trade-offs that, that got to be sort of matched against the eating psychology benefits. So the athlete 
needs to be aware uh, that intuitive eating has the potential to delay attainment of one's physique um, or performance goals. For athletes that are that are just they're investing substantial resources, time, and money into some sort of physique-related endeavor, or if they're compete competing in an elite level, extensive time spent where they aren't progressing physically, um, it's probably just not going to be a worthy cost for them. Um, and and in terms of when we actually say off-season, as in time away from not improving, the best athletes just don't have much time doing that. Like uh, I'm sure you. A lot of the listeners would have watched the the last dance. Now, what sort of off season was Michael Jordan having? The second the season was over, because you can remember in season, you're not really improving per se. You're just trying to maintain your performance. But the second that season's over, the the, the really elite athletes, their heads are switch on. Okay, how the hell do we get better? Like it's not off. Let's kick the feet up and relax till next season. It's let's make strides forward. Um, and if you are adopting intuitive eating for a substantial period of your off season, you're just not going to be making that many uh, steps forward, in my opinion. Um, I also think this is something I haven't said before um, on the podcast from memory, um, but I think the intuitive eating in today's, let's call it obesogenic environment, uh, makes it a lot harder to, to sort of follow intuitive eating successfully as perhaps maybe five, six years ago when it was first sort of um, being popularized. Now we need to understand that the standard Western diet now consists of hyper palatable, very calorie dense, low cost foods. And research has shown that society's perception of a normal portion size has increased even over the last few years. So with that in mind, if someone intuitively eats from cheap, delicious, and calorie dense food sources that are readily available everywhere. Uh, fast food outlets, middles, aisles at the grocery store. Um, then they are just very likely to consume a large number of calories in a short amount of time because one, our perception of what a normal portion size should look like has been distorted now. And two, because common calorie dense, and palatable foods, they just have very poor satiety value. So this means if, if you're eating to reach a biological point of satiety, let's say from eating chocolate cake, an enormous amount more calories will be consumed in contrast to the energy required via oatmeal, let's say, to reach th this same point of satiety. Um, there was actually a study published recently that showed the average meal from like a non-chain restaurant, so like not like a McDonald's or something, um, like a sit-down pub restaurant or something like that, um, was around 1,500 calories on average. And that's not including drinks, appetizers, or desserts. So if you go to a normal restaurant, order an average dish, eat intuitively until satiety, which we would assume is going to be somewhere around the complete portion size, you could be consuming around 50 to 70% of your caloric needs to maintain weight in one hit. This means that the likelihood of establishing an energy surplus um, increases substantially unless you're intuitively compensating with reduced calorie intake in the other meals, which is just damn unlikely given the satiety response is quite poor from these calorie dense, super tasty restaurant meals. Um, now the, the, those situations, it can just result in an energy intake that isn't, indicative 
of our site of our physiological energy needs and I, I hesitate to guess that one of the reasons that we have this global obesity epidemic is a consumption to satiety of these processed highly energy energy dense restaurant prepared tasty foods very well said jackson i think um uh, many interesting points uh, that i could touch on actually and one of them i thought was like very pertinent to the listeners because some people may be listening and be thinking i'm not a michael jordan uh, i'm not someone who is a like highly competitive person and so maybe i don't need the trade-off of having the kind of maybe more negative psychological outcomes through tracking or whatever it may be but then you also describe how intuitive eating is meant to be a weight neutral approach and so if anyone on this podcast is listening and thinking i want to gain muscle or i want to lose fat they're inevitably not weight neutral in their goals and if those goals are quite high up on their list of priorities then again like you described an intuitive eating approach doesn't make complete sense um and then if people start thinking oh i'm going to start doing other things i'm going to like intuitively eat, but kind of have an understanding of what my macros are and pick certain foods that's starting to also move away from like you said the, the true intuitive eating that's kind of becoming more mindful and you're still mentally tracking even though you're not formally tracking and i think that was one of the things that was often happening where people were saying they're intuitive eating but it, it's still i think once you've almost tracked to truly intuitively it would almost be difficult because you are having those preconceived and that education behind it which i think is part of intuitive eating but it it is it's a very um difficult construct at times for a physique competitor to, to think about <laughs> Yeah, I, I just as another cool little anecdote, touching on exactly what you just said there. Um, so I was with Eric when we were traveling the Gold Coast for a seminar and he was prepping at the time. And um, so he wasn't tracking his food during prep and we were eating out at restaurants and things like that. But that absolutely doesn't mean that he was eating intuitively. It's just some of these guys, they've got years of experience under the belt. And it's almost impossible for them to be served a meal without them looking at it and being like, okay, that's got X amount of protein, X amount of carbs, X amount of fats. And I know roughly I need to eat about this much to progress and lose maybe half a percent of my body weight over a couple of weeks. Like that's all data that they previously had that's allowing them to sort of eat without having to pull my fitness pal out of each meal. That's a completely different practice as intuitive eating is basically defined which is not worrying about how many protein carbs and fats in a meal it's am i fit do i feel satiated and satisfied from this meal um or not yeah absolutely and i think it's it's interesting because I, I like when you dig into a bit of research in terms of like using the scale for body weight management um there is some very po positive research but then there's also research that shows that it has negative psychological outcomes because it puts like an emphasis on like body weight and your kind of obviously how you're looking and things i think for a lot of our goals for muscle gain and fat loss there are, is inevitable and like you said there's inevitable trade-offs when you're trying to pursue something that is uh, kind of something the body doesn't necessarily want like we all know the homeostasis is where the body wants to be if you want to push it outside of that you've got to get a bit uncomfortable and there's inevitably some trade-offs involved with that so um, I thought that was very interesting and something I did want to touch on was you quoted I think Jake Lenarden in terms of actually people with eating disorders probably don't want to go down the intuitive eating road um, is that correct yeah so um 
basically people will, who are suffering from eating disorders and have been diagnosed with clinical um, eating disorders, they basically have extremely twisted hunger and satiety cues that just don't really make sense anymore. And they don't really know how to interpret what feels full and what feels hungry anymore. So telling those guys just to eat what you feel like and when you feel like it can have disastrous consequences because they just don't have, um, they just don't have an understanding anymore of, of what satiety is supposed to feel like. So what Jake recommends is um, the first point of call with, with someone struggling with severe eating disorders is not to push them towards intuitive eating. It's actually to introduce them to dietary restraint again and allow them to observe and feel what a normalish day of eating should look like and what's the normal sensation they should feel um, after a, a regular meal and things like that. And then over time, when they start to basically come back in touch with those sensations, that's when potentially intuitive eating um, can be a possibility. But uh, for, for in, initially, Jake, Jake will never... Um, or I shouldn't say never, but he, he rarely uh, advises for intuitive eating and people who are really struggling with eating disorders just because they don't have that. Uh, they're just not in tune with their hunger and satiety cues anymore. Yeah, very well. Um, very, very cool, actually. And when you spell it out like that, it just makes complete sense. Like I think people, um, sometimes the answer can be as, as simple as that when you just talk it through. And I know in the, the podcast you've touched on I think you may have touched on it as you were just talking in terms of when you might use it. It's like maybe once you've kind of retired uh, from the sport and you're not. And not there's so much like a lot of, uh, there seems to be this miscommunication or misconception that like if you follow dietary restraint for so long, for like years and years, you're going to be broken and there's no coming back. But there's actually been studies published that have shown that even in um, really elite athletes, from memory, it was. There were some marathon runners and some triathletes, guys who have really had to have a high level of dietary restraint just to keep their body weight down to, to basically help that endurance efficiency. Uh, but and they all were present they were presenting with uh, borderline clinical eating disorders um, diagnoses, and the the response rate to intuitive eating once they retired and the success it was observed was something in like the 90, 90% success rate. So just because you've been doing years and years of dietary restraint doesn't mean that intuitive eating isn't, can't be an option for you uh, later on. Yeah. So I think a, a good way to look at this is if you're a competitive athlete and you've got competitive goals that, that can't be achieved weight neutral, then intuitive eating is probably not great for right now, but once the comp competition goes uh, uh, to the wayside and perhaps you just want to basically you're in search for sort of general well-being and positive mood states and positive psychology, then perhaps um, intuitive eating can be a, a nice step. Yeah. And I think I, I also want, I think we may have said that you could use it in this way on the podcast. And um, I think people may think to do it in this way uh, when they're kind of looking at when intuitive eating makes most sense for them as a physique competitor would be potentially like in a diet break period or a maintenance mm. period after a long mass phase or a cutting period. And mm. since you've described how um, like their kind of 
someone's uh, hunger signals are disrupted uh, when they're obviously someone who has had an eating disorder in the past it may not work the best for them probably in those situations your hunger signaling is not in the best situation like at the top of a mass phase you just you're probably going to under eat um exactly. and then you just same regress with back towards the main it's called like yeah. the re regression to the main fallacy is basically the if if you're progressing with a mass and you're getting further and further and further away from the main and then you start following bio biological cues you're just going to find yourself drift back and regress towards the main so you're exactly right Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. And the same with the cut, I think, I don't know if you've, because you're obviously deep into a diet breaks, um, whether you've seen people try and do like, oh, it's a diet break. So, oh, I should just intuitively eat this week and, I could I think only that see can that be disastrous yeah. because like the, the, uh, you, you can probably relate to this in, in some of your contest preps, but when, once you get lean enough and once you've been dieting for long enough, it's almost like no volume of food is satiating. It's like that you could eat 6,000 calories and be like, Hmm, I could, I could go another dessert sort of thing. Like your, your, your appetite cues are almost uh, temporarily sort of on pause or broken. Sorry, my dog's gone crazy. Um, yeah. Your appetite cues are just so out of whack. If you were trying to, if you were intentionally eating to, to satiety, let's say at the really tail end of a cut or during a diet, if you want a diet break near the end of your cut or perhaps even transitioning out of um, the end of a cut, then the likelihood that you're going to be consuming multiple thousand calorie surpluses per day is just quite likely. Um, and again, it's, it's a biological drive and biological function to try to get you back to a set point body weight and body fat as quick as possible yeah i think you mentioned it in the article you talked about probably the closest I, I don't know if it is even the closest to it but flexible dietary restraint is kind of the that's the healthy but it has the restraint there so it has goal driven but it's still the flexible element is about as flexible as we can get without moving too far away from actually having a goal driven diet yeah exactly cool Awesome. Um, yeah, really well said. And something else I wanted to touch on this podcast, again, inspired by one of your uh, JPS articles. And so uh, people can check out the written form if they want to uh, head over there as well, because I know you do some fantastic work there. But this is something I don't think we've ever formally touched on the podcast. It's maybe come up a little bit in a Q&A here or there sparsely, but hasn't been really described and spoken about in the way that you spoke about it. Um, and that is to do with alcohol and kind of for the physique enthusiast, again, many of the listeners, or at least they're coaching people that are very interested. And many of those people they're coaching probably do drink. Um, and maybe some of the people do drink as well. And um, you potentially had some controversial uh, comments to make. Um, but I think very pertinent for people listening, because they may not realize kind of what they're doing, um, and how much of a role it could be playing in their results. Yeah, I think this is a very diverse topic. And sometimes people are apprehensive to talk up about it. Uh, because of the support alcohol consumption has by some highly respected people um, in our in our fitness sort of niche. And I'm not saying that they're promoting alcohol, but it's 
fairly regularly to see photos of wine or a beer um, or uh, wine and cheese or thing, things like that quite regularly on Instagram. And that over time sort of, um, even if it's not intentionally coming in from, or perhaps it's coming out of a, a good intentions, um, it has the potential to persuade the perceptions of, of the wider fitness community who perhaps put these people on a pedestal and everything they do is, well, that, that's optimal. That's, that's the way I should be doing things as well. Now, it greatly perplexes me that the same people in the evidence-based community arguing over whether they should be using two-day refeeds or seven-day diet breaks or whether they should be consuming intra-workout carbohydrates or not, things we might call the one percenters. These people are also consuming alcohol on a regular basis. Now, it seems like a complete cognitive dissonance to me to engage in behaviours to potentially maximise physique advancement and behaviours that require substantial effort and planning with potentially small upside at that when we're talking about these little nuanced strategies and things like that, um, while also engaging in another behavior that has just been shown time and time again in research to compromise uh, one's physique efforts. And I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some of that research briefly. Um, but the irony of the issue that I think um, is that people are placing more of their attentional focus on these novel strategies like the refeeds and fancy supplements and um, wild periodization schemes, uh, which truly have relatively little consensus from the literature and also with small effect sizes and perhaps might not even provide any benefits at all. Yet these people seem to disregard or underappreciate the extensive evidence for the negative impacts of alcohol consumption. Now, <clears throat> this is not to suggest that everyone in the evidence-based fitness community is consuming weekly, fortnightly alcohol or, or something like that. Um, but a lot of people are. Um, and like I said before, um, I dare say the prevalence has increased in recent years. That's just me looking from the outside, but I'm not sure if you've had that same observation as well, but it seems like it's increased in recent years um, as consequence of the regular alcohol consumption and at times I'll call it glorification um, by the, the higher ups and the influences um, in our fitness industry. And, I, and I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I know you, you know who I'm talking about, Steve. Um, now I'm a realist and, and I acknowledge that a few drinks each month is not going to ruin all your progress. Um, but let's just say even with partial impairment to your physique, physique progress, it just if, if we want to come at this from like a financial mindset, it seems like an incredibly unwise investment decision to invest your finite resources into fancy training and nutrition tactics that may not provide any benefits. And if they do likely explain a fragment of your progress or your investment return, instead of just avoiding a practice that is guaranteed to provide a dividend or a worthwhile return. Um, in other words, we can avoid doing a practice, i.e. regular alcohol consumption, and we will receive notable and notable benefits that have been confirmed by research. But perhaps, but for whatever reason, um, a lot of people in the fitness community choose to 
focus all this time on these sort of fancy and, and sometimes even fad strategies mm. um, in constant search for this one or 2% gain where they could just, it could be such a, more of a simpler process just to avoid engaging one, one sort of behavior that, that will give um, a marked benefit. Now, I, w- I did want to touch on some of the um, downsides of alcohol because I just don't, I, I just don't think that they're appreciated as enough yeah. as they should be. And for some reason, it's like the like people in the fitness community seem to think alcohol is, is okay as long as you track the calories from it. And like, it's just, it's so much more complex than that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we should be of the perspective that, that alcohol really doesn't hurt the physique or that we can avoid the downsides if we just track the calories as carbs or, or something like that. So <clears throat> what we do know, is that alcohol reduces muscle protein synthesis via inhibition of of mTOR, um, which is an important cellular component in the anabolic signaling cascade towards muscle growth. Now, in one study, consuming an average meal with a standard drink of alcohol reduced protein synthesis by 30% over four hours. That's just one standard drink. Now, in another study, nine standard drinks consumed post-workout decreased muscle protein synthesis by 25%. So, and and this is over 24 hours. Now, if we try to say, okay, well, what do those numbers mean in sort of practical context? Um, Menno Henselmans has talked about this in the past, but a 40% calorie deficit, so we're talking quite severe, and with low protein intake, has been found to cause a decrease in muscle protein synthesis by around 35%. So we're basically like from a single night of drinking, we're talking about the same catabolic effects that are comparable to a 40% calorie deficit with low protein intake. So the catabolic effects we're discussing are actually quite substantial. Um, And that's why I do think that some people are perhaps either they're negligent and they just don't want to know about it because they like having their drinks. um, So they just sort of turn turn, turn a blind eye. Um, and the ignorance is bliss in a sense, um, or perhaps they're just not aware. Um, now, alcohol also reduces our anabolic hormones and increases catabolic hormones. So the research showed that, and this was a really good study, three to eight drinks on one occasion, which would be like a pretty big night out um, with your friends, that can reduce testosterone by 20 to 40%. And it can decrease your GH growth hormone pulse frequency. So things not conducive to sort of an anabolic hormonal environment. Now, if you're getting even crazier and consuming more than nine drinks on any one occasion, this reduced testosterone by 45%. So this is comparable to testosterone crashes seen with male bodybuilding contest prep. Um, and, and some evidence, this is when things get kind of really wacky and scary, suggests that chronic alcohol consumption, so doing this sort of quite regularly with time, has been shown in research to lead to testi- testicular shrinkage um, and reduced capacity to produce testosterone. So it's not just the acute testosterone suppressive effects of alcohol. You can be permanently damaging um, your testosterone production if you... Um, keep consuming alcohol regularly and for a long enough time. Um, if you're performing exercise or, or training before you hit the drinks, um, evidence showed that the reduction um, 
in testosterone that we usually see acutely over 24 hours can sometimes last even up to 40, 48 hours. So um, it seems like the, the closer the alcohol is in proximity to training, um, even the worse things get. Um, and in terms of the catabolic hormones, uh, we've seen that cortisol, uh, obviously a hormone implicated with fat gain and fat-free mass loss, that increased by 152% after a night of drinking. Now, a lot of athletes, they, they talk about sort of keeping stress low during a prep and trying to sort of manage cortisol levels and things like that. Far out, if, 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 you're, if you're getting on the alcohol, you have no business talking about about sort of managing your cortisol when you can just avoid alcohol and and basically avoid 152% increase um, in your cortisol levels that, that would spike um, four hours after you, you hit the drinks. Um, and just finally on sort of the, the hormonal argument, um, alcohol also increases the conversion of testosterone to estrogen in the liver. Uh, and when that's happening, we've got less testosterone in circulation. So all these things happening as a result of alcohol are basically putting you in a suboptimal anabolic hormonal environment. And you just can't expect to, to grow as much muscle or progress as much as someone who is avoiding these things. Um, and just as a final point, because maybe some people say, okay, I don't care so much about muscle. I just compare i just care about my strength gains um alcohol still causes strength loss uh, one study showed that six standard drinks caused somewhere between 12 to 20 percent strength loss compared to, to drinking orange juice so you're, you're going to lose my you're going to impair your muscle growth response and you're going to lose your strength and and you've got a suboptimal hormonal environment all of those things as a direct consequence of alcohol uh, you just can't expect, you, once those things accumulate, that's going to have some substantial um, negative effects on basically your, your physique um, aspirations. Now, I'll just give maybe like a quick, I don't know, take home. Um, and this might be controversial for, for some people, but I think if you are either training twice a day to improve recovery and intensity of your sessions or consuming intra-workout carbs in an attempt to reduce protein breakdown or calorie cycling or just any strategy that's likely to impart minimal benefit on the grand scheme of things. Um, yet you also consume alcohol regularly. I just think you are an evidence-based hypocrite, to be honest. Um, and if you are doing those things, I really do hope you aren't influencing others to engage um, in the same behavior as, as yourself. Um, like I'm pro-choice, so if, if drink alcohol if you want to, if, if that's more important than, than sort of maximizing, maximizing your physique efforts, but man, don't act like it's inconsequential um, to one's physique or that it should be habitual behavior for everyone in the fitness industry because that's just not the case. And I see it time and time again, but what I actually think it is, is just people trying to justify uh, their own alcohol intake and feel better about it. Little do you know, Jackson, I love a bevy. No, I'm joking. I was, <laughs> I was reading the, the that sentence where you talked about the tra training twice a day, having intra workouts. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he's calling me out here. But uh, fortunately, <laughs> I don't actually uh, drink like ever. Uh, so <laughs> thankfully, I'm not of an evidence-based hypocrite. Um, but it was... I think you touched on a really good point there is because I think at least for a lot of people, 
they will just consider like alcohol. Oh, it's just like that other macro that you just replace with carbs and fat and everything's fine. And it's like, well, no, uh, alcohol is actually a poison. And so with any like something like that, there's going to be some negative consequences. And whilst it's, it's nice to tiptoe around it because of like what's socially acceptable and you have to be kind of similar in, in a way to intuitive eating, I guess, but it's just there, there are hard facts involved. And whilst I think you'd say you're pro-choice, just like I am, I'm also very much pro-awareness of kind of what these things are going to be doing. Mm, exactly. Um, and it sounds like a, a yeah, dose don't, response. Don't make your choice until you understand the information, yeah. right? Yeah. And it sounded like it was the literature is pointing to a dose response. So like more is definitely worse. Is there like, have you seen an amount that, is it any amount is going to have, unfortunately, somewhat of a negative consequence? And is there any kind of your practical take home in terms of, I don't know, frequency of doing so, uh, quantity, um, maybe times yeah. to avoid it? Yeah, well, absolutely don't take it in close proximity to your training. Um, but in terms of like what's a okay dose that's not likely to harm, I don't think we can say any dose is, is going to have zero harm because mm -hmm. like that study I touched on before, just having one standard drink of alcohol with, with your meal reduces protein synthesis by 30%. Um, so that's one standard drink. That's a, that's a shot. That's, that's a light beer. Uh, so um, most people are consuming more than that or perhaps uh, that, um, that amount. But uh, yeah, I, I, I refrain from saying like three standard drinks is okay because I just say less, the less you can yeah. have is better if we're talking purely from like a physique progression standpoint. If you can abstain, that's going to give the best results. If you're going to drink, um, less is better. And I think probably I was at least thinking about a situation. I may have even done this way in the past many years ago um, where maybe I'll be dieting and I'll just eat like protein and veggies. I'll save calories to then have a like a, somewhat of a binge in the evening. I probably did this at university at some point. And I can only imagine that's probably not a great thing to do when dieting, especially because, I mean, your muscle protein synthesis is already down regulated and then you're saving, I mean, for a lot of calories for alcohol. I imagine dieting is probably one of the more worse times to do it if there is ever a, yeah, a worse big time. time. Like your, your, your muscle protein synthesis is already chronically suppressed and then you're putting a, a, a catabolic effect on top of that could have some nasty yeah. effects. Cool. Uh, awesome. Uh, I think it wouldn't be a podcast with you, Jackson, without touching on diet breaks. Uh, I think everyone's <laughs> expecting it and I know we're going to get you back on to talk about those a little bit more. But something I did want to touch on is the timing of a diet break. And again, this is probably one of those one percenters or nuanced and kind of ideas where maybe we haven't got a ton of data for, but I think you said there is some preliminary data coming out now. Um, and I know, uh, yeah, you have some thoughts about when to time the diet break in terms of not frequency, but more so where in line with your training. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. Yeah, so this um, idea of synchronizing diet breaks with specific phases of your training cycle, um, that I, I, I'm not just talking out of my ass. This is uh, based on the preliminary data we've got coming from our lab, uh, which has been... Uh, which has run two diet break studies so far. Um, 
and we've collected the data for one. Um, two of, are in the process of being analysed. Now, based on some of the things that we've been seeing and some of the trends, we have hypothesised that diet breaks might reduce appetite over the course of a weight loss phase. And I, I would almost say I'm fairly certain that, that, that we're going to see um, notable uh, effects there. We also hypothesize based on some of the data that's coming through that the most notable decreases in appetite would happen during the actual diet break. So during the seven days um, in energy balance, which seems completely logical. Now this has substantial merit, uh, particularly for athletes, because if we were, if I was correct in my, in my um, hypothesis, it could mean that, reduced food related distractions uh, could lead to improved mental focus. Now with improved mental focus, even uh, acutely, this could provide a fantastic opportunity for higher volume, higher intensity blocks of training where a lot of mental focus and mental resilience is going to be required. Now this sort of theory fits nicely with other research that has shown accumulated mental fatigue. So the opposite of mental focus is actually associated with poorer performance. So that's, that's one angle that we're coming at this timing um, thing from. Another angle <clears throat> is that um, in addition to this possible increase in mental focus, likely resulting from reduced hunger during the diet break, we think that training performance might directly improve during the diet break itself. Now, this is because we know both carbohydrate and energy availability impair strength uh, and endurance performance while increasing the perception of the effort. So it is conceivable that a period of higher energy intake, i.e. a seven-day carbohydrate-rich diet break, might offset some of these negative performance effects, at least temporarily. And this begs the question of whether diet breaks should be synchronized with key training sessions or weeks, or perhaps even just mentally demanding training blocks for an indirect uh, competitive advantage. Um, now, I know among a lot of athletes, not so much strictly physique athletes, um, but there is anecdotal evidence that suggests at least in sports athletes, that diet breaks are a pretty favorable time for high volume and high intensity training uh, with the short term increase in this energy availability and carbohydrate av availability, likely providing enhanced performance and reduced fatigue or at least dissipation of fatigue. But this hasn't been tested empirically um, until sort of the study that we're running, that we're tying up at the moment. <clears throat> now, it absolutely does need to be tested empirically. Um, we can't just hypothesize because if the diet breaks do not improve muscle performance as supposed, um, then their use or overuse could be actually unnecessarily delaying the attainment of the, of the athlete's weight and fat loss goals. Because after all, a diet breaks are just sort of time spent at maintenance. They aren't directly... Uh, propelling you in a forward direction um, towards your goals. Now, 
preliminary observations. Uh, the, in terms of what happens with performance during the diet break, it seems as though the uh, improvements in endurance are more notable than improve, improvements in strength. And it also seems that the effects are more observed in larger muscle groups like the quadriceps compared to uh, something like the biceps. And I, I've, I'm, I'm sort of speculating about why. Um, and it seems that uh, when we're looking at other research um, and during sort of calorie restriction and heavy training regimes, uh, smaller muscle groups seem to deplete their muscle glycogen uh, much quicker and, and more rapidly and to a greater degree than something like the quadriceps, which seem to be a little bit more resilient. The larger muscle groups seem to be a little bit more resilient to that glycogen depletion. So what, we are, what I'm potentially thinking is that um, perhaps the carbohydrate deficit was so large in these smaller muscle groups that even the seven-day diet break wasn't enough to sort of top it back up to get it into a conducive performance point, whereas um, perhaps these larger muscle groups, they didn't have so much of a, a large carbohydrate deficit that, that seven days in energy balance with high carbs was just enough to sort of push it over the edge. So, yeah, we got some cool stuff um, coming out of that, and I can't wait to get it sort of finalized and published up. Interesting. No, it's, it's really interesting because um, these are the things that I think, again, they may only be the 1% and taking the diet break full stop may even be a 1%. We don't um, like mm -hmm. have tons of data to, to know that just yet. Um, so then mm -hmm. timing of it, I guess, is even more of a nuanced idea. But it, it's very interesting, especially um, for me at the moment, I've been timing them with uh, deload periods, which you've probably seen some people um, doing. And kind of my mind was, oh, you're reducing like training fatigue, let's reduce diet related fatigue at the same time to get kind of the, the benefits of both replenish glycogen and kind of, in a sense, refuel the car before another journey into another mesocycle. Um, in addition to kind of if there is any kind of down regulation in MPS because we're deloading and training volumes way down, intensities way down, we're not causing an overload. So there potentially could be at someone who's very lean towards the end of a deload week, maybe risk of muscle loss. So we're protecting that uh, potentially with being at maintenance. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts to that logic, if if you have any yeah. feelings towards it. I see, but I, I understand both perspectives. Um, like I, I fully understand that there's a reasonable theoretical rationale that like you can have this hyper recovery phase by sort of dropping your training volume and dropping your dieting load, if we want to call it. Um, but I still think when looking at wider athlete research and not so much just physique athletes, um, I'm fairly confident that we have a stronger rationale to give an athlete more energy when they're doing the most work or where, when their training or performance demands uh, are the highest. Now things get a little bit tricky because of the differences between sort of the training output of, of uh, sports athletes and physique athletes who are going in to do their 15 sets a session and then they're out of there. Um, and like, I, I don't think one way is necessarily wrong. Um, I do sit slightly on the side of the fence of, um, synchronized diet breaks when you when you've got a really important training week coming up either that requires a lot of mental focus or some mental toughness um or 
if you're just really going to test yourself, i.e. sort of going for PRs or pushing to those really high volumes, i.e. the week before a deload or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think if you're going into those weeks with a regular energy restriction week, uh, performance is going to be suboptimal. Um, and if you synchronize your diet breaks with your deload, I feel like you're just missing out on all the performance advantages um, that you could have. Uh, I just think that if you think if you if you line up your diet breaks with an important performance week, uh, you could potentially uh, see some unexpected performance gains that, that just wouldn't be there or would be left on the table if you didn't sort of provide the system with the ample nutrients when you're going into that really hard or heavy week yeah and then you'd be you just diet through the diet break as you were previously yeah, I like, guess. so with the idea of like diet breaking on a deload week it's sort of the same as just giving a super high diet break on a training week in my in my opinion um because like you're diet breaking them and I'm not sure, I assume most people are going to like predicted maintenance um, if, if you're going on a deload, which means that your predicted maintenance is now going to come down some, maybe 150 calories or so because training volume and intensity is lower. Um, so it's almost like, well, your diet break is going to be, have a lower energy value than it otherwise would. Whereas if you are sort of synchronizing it on, a regular training week or a high intensity week, you'd be having extra food anyway. So I feel like it might balance out some, but yeah, okay. I, like I said, I don't think one's wrong. Um, I just sit slightly on the fence of, of um, give them the extra nutrients and the carbohydrates when they're going into, to try to maximize performance um, or maximize recovery. Like last week before a deload far out, when you're really pushing yourself, it just makes a whole lot of sense to me to provide the body with extra carbohydrates that are fuel for the nervous system, which is the system that regulates our fatigue and our recovery. So that, that's where I stand on the matter. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, and it's interesting uh, to hear different perspectives and it's not something I've personally tried yet. So I may even try it at some point just to see like anecdotally, how do I feel when I do it the other way around? Um, so yeah, fantastic. We've, we've covered all my questions. Um, I don't know if there's anything you Jackson kind of have interesting coming out that you want to kind of tease the listeners with, or yeah, when, uh, can we expect the results uh, from your study? When is that all kind of looking? I know it's unfortunately slower than we'd all like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, slower than I would like, man. Um, so there's two studies that are that I've been saying are close for a long time, but the the manuscript is is mostly prepared. Now, one of the studies is um, basically the first diet break study on athletes. Uh, we had 60 athletes recruited for that, and we compared a 12 week continuous diet with 12 weeks of intermittent dieting, where they dieted for three weeks straight and then had one week diet breaks. So. We tested a whole host of outcomes. I'm talking fat loss, fat-free mass, resting metabolic rate, hormonal profiles, performance, psychology. So we're going to see all those things be published um, and basically uh, compare what, so what, what's happening with those variables, whether you're on a continuous diet or an intermittent diet and, and does an intermittent versus continuous diet even matter? Um, I will say that without giving away too much, um, this study is going to change a lot of people's perceptions or, or current perceptions about refeeding and diet break strategies. Um, I think 
the perception at the moment is that uh, refeeds and diet breaks are this infallible, highly evidence-based scientific tool guaranteed to provide better outcomes during your fat loss um, than uh, continuous dieting. And I'm less confident to be able to make statements uh, like that. And I think people are putting, based on the data that, that I'll be publishing and, and even based on the two-day refeed stuff from Campbell's lab, uh, I do think people are putting far too much weight on the, on the merits um, of these strategies, um, diet breaks and refeeds. That's not to say I don't think they have any merits and, and we'll show those um, in the study, but many, many benefits are also overblown. Um, so uh, it's going to be a, a massive talking point for a lot of people and I, and I can't wait to get that out and, and hear people's um, perspectives on that. It was a really well-controlled study. We had really great compliance and a really solid athlete cohort. So I feel like this is the first time anyone can actually speak confidently about diet breaks in, in an athlete resistance training context. Uh, we've also got um, another study basically looking at the, like I touched on, the, the acute effects of a diet break actually within the diet break on uh, measures of, of muscle performance, uh, appetite, irritability, alertness, and things like that. So um, basically trying to give some credence to is, will, does this synchronizing um, theory have, have any weight to it? Um, for, for example, are we seeing notable performance improvements that would therefore say, okay, well, you're going to perform your best on your diet break, therefore put it on an important training week where your performance sort of needs to be maximized um, or even uh, do diet breaks reduce hunger notably during the diet break? Perhaps sort of synchronize that when you've got a lot going on externally and you need that mental focus and, and sort of not so much uh, food focus or, or food perception. So um, that one's going to be really cool and that's going to be coming out. Uh, I, hope, I hope to have them both uh, submitted within sort of the next two to three months. And I'm hoping for a publication by the end of the year we are going for really high impact factor journals. Um, it gripes me a lot that um, a lot of the like IG researchers, they're just pumping out studies in really crappy, low grade open access um, journals with like one impact factors um, where, where we're going for like the top four sports science journals in the world. So um, it, it's going to be really cool to, to get some, some physique research in journals yeah. like that because it hasn't really been done before. That's incredibly exciting. Um, just sitting here kind of like, yeah, that sounds like definitely up the listener street, up my street. And <laughs> I actually want to give you a, a big shout out here because you did a presentation for our member site where you did give some of the insights into all of this. And if, if, it did, if this discussion did pique people's interest, I definitely suggest thinking about at least, um, yeah, signing up just to, to listen to Jackson talk about that <laughs> because it was a great presentation. And um, I think like what is science science is about getting to the truth and it may may make some people feel uncomfortable and um, i mean there was something like reverse dieting for a time was pro promoted as the way to do things and now it's looked as maybe not um so mm. it, it's definitely interesting to kind of yeah get closer to that truth and yeah, i want to thank yeah. you for doing that research and i'm sure the listeners will be the same no no I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure to be back on and I'll, I'll just say following on that point um like people are going to be surprised about the way that I speak about diet breaks and refeeds in the next few months compared to perhaps if they listen to me 
on a podcast six or eight, nine months ago. And people tend to get disappointed for whatever reason, like, oh, like the results weren't what we expected. But this is why we do the science, man. Like if we, if we, like we can have hypotheses and we can think results might go the same way, but at the end of the day, we do the, we do these studies because we're not really sure. Um, so um, I've, I've spoken to a couple of sort of close researchers and they're, they're sort of like, oh, you're disappointed that the result was X and things like that. So not really because um, why, why would I be disappointed in any result? Because we're, we're, we're increasing our knowledge and our understanding of it. You haven't got a book lined up. <laughs> the, uh, the diet break book <laughs> make your diet more efficient and easier <laughs> well the, the the intermittent dieting books seem to sell like hotcakes so i might have to think about it like the five two diet eight eight yeah. all, all those dudes are rich <laughs> <laughs> jackson thank you so much for your time uh, again um it's always a pleasure to chat and uh yeah if listeners want to find out more from you um i know you're now on your youtube you've been making uh, more effort there and uh, i'm really happy to see that and over on instagram i know i spoke about it last time but you're always sharing really cool little insights into studies that i'm always yeah taking little chunks away to yeah keep to myself and uh yeah um where where can people find out more about you jackson yeah so youtube youtube is my little baby um if, if you can go find my YouTube and drop a comment revive, then you'll be a real homie. <laughs> uh, so I know where, know where you found me from. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm focusing just putting some more educational, uh, also lifestyle content through there. Uh, if you like anime, sure as hell, subscribe. Because um, there's, there's a fair bit of that on there. A lot of food as well. Um, but apart from that, Instagram's the best place to get me. Um, all my research updates um, and when the new studies get published and things like that, that'll all be going through there. And that's just uh, at Jackson Peels. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll make sure that's all linked below so people can get hold of you. And yeah, thanks again. Thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you soon. Thank you, Steve. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. 
I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.